If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to continue our study in Ephesians. I think we'll come pretty close to finishing up maybe in January, maybe one week in February. I'm not, um, not real sure yet. It just depends on how the, I was going I was going to tackle two subjects in one this morning, and that didn't. that's not going to work out. So um, I'm not going to give you any promises about finishing in January. We're too deep in it to stop now, and I still feel liberty to go this direction. And so that's what we're going to do. Just kind of a brief review. Um, first three chapters of, of Ephesians are, are positional. We talked, we, in fact, I started this whole series because I think, for in large part, a lot of Christians don't know who they are in Christ. We don't know our identity, and um, we don't walk like people that know our identity. So it talks about who we are in Christ because of our faith in Christ, who we are because of what God has done for us in Christ and because we believed and trusted that. And so it's very doctrinal in nature. Not a, lot of, not a lot of stuff in those first three chapters that we need to do. Um, just stuff that we need to know and believe in our heart. But uh, beginning in chapter 4, um, Paul shifts gears and goes more to a practical application. Because of who we are in Christ, this is how he has called us to live our lives. Um, and, and, and we do these things not in order to be saved, but because we are saved. And so he gives direction of what a life whose identity is found in Christ looks like. And, and one of the things that, that I picked up that I've never really seen before is how many times he used the word walk in all of this, that we that we're to walk a certain way. In fact, he started chapter 4 by saying that we are to, that because of all that God has done for us in Christ, we ought to work, walk worthy of the vocation that he's called us to as Christians. Walk worthy. Walk in a worthy way. Walk in a way that gives him honor and glory um, that, that pleases the one who has saved us. And we've gone through this list of ways that we walk. He told us to walk in unity in, in, verse, in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, that um, there's no kings or beggars in the kingdom. There's not even black or white or male or female or bond or free. We're one in Christ. The ground's level at the foot of the cross. Um, he doesn't think more highly of me than he thinks of you. God is no respecter of persons. And we need to walk in that unity and that oneness of who we are in Christ. Um, it, it's, it's the best witness we have to a lost and dying world um, when we can walk together um, for his glory. And, and hand in hand with that, walk with his purpose. God's building his kingdom on the earth. We're the church. He is building his eternal kingdom in and through the church. And our purpose is that we grow up um, individually and we grow up corporately um, to look more and more like Jesus as we mature in our faith. And, and part of that context of that is the different gifts that he's given to us. And, um, and one of those gifts is pastor-teacher, which I believe that he has placed on my life. And what I'm supposed to do is equip you to do um, the work of the ministry, not just do the work of the ministry, but equip you. And those other things kind of flow out of that. And if you're going to do the work of the ministry, you need to walk in holiness. That's an, that's an attitude of the heart. Makes you want to be like Christ. That um, walk in love, um, walk in light, um, and that's more of the outward, the externals of that inward holiness. And then last we talked about walking in wisdom. Now I'm not you. You can go back and listen to those sermons, and it'll give you all the detail about those. But um, we we ended on on uh, chapter 21 or verse 21 rather of chapter five, and uh, it says submitting yourselves one to another in the fear. Of God, there's a word that's introduced there, and it's that word submit. Um, and the rest of I believe Ephesians, it, it's, I would say at least 
um, the rest of chapter 5 and the first part of chapter 6 until he starts talking about spiritual warfare. Um, the, that whole idea of submission is key, to, and, and those, it's going to expound on that word about submission throughout the text. So, so I'm just going to keep the walk going, even though he didn't use the word walk in this, that God wants us to walk in submission, both to him and to each other. And when we walk in submission to God, that just means we're walking in obedience to his word. And, and tied into that is that when we submit to each other, we're walking in the way that his word instructs us relationally. So that, that word submission um, is a Greek word, hupotasso, H-U-P-O-T-A-S-S-A. Um, it's a compound word. Hupo is under, and tasso just means to arrange or to assign. So to under arrange. Um, I looked it up, did a little bit of a word study in Strong's Concordance and Blue Letter Bible, which is a wonderful online resource. It was originally a Greek military term, and it was used to assign troops in an orderly fashion to place them under different leadership models. Now, when you apply that in the sense of a non-military term like we have in the scripture, it is a voluntary attitude of giving in, of cooperating, of assuming the responsibility and or burden of something. So that's what the word means when it's used in the biblical sense. And the first application of submission that we have in our text today and in the word of God is that is, is to or, recognize those roles within the home. Recognize that God has given us an orderly standard for the home. And when we follow God's standard for the home, it works. Um, and when we follow God's standard for the home, then we can apply that standard within the church and we can apply it in society as a whole. So he, he is, uh, in chapter 5, 22 through 6, 9, he lays out what walking in submission looks like. And, and, and he lays that out as a, as a God-ordained arrangement of our life outside of the church. Now, there's another structure inside the church, and, and we can talk about that at some other time. God has given structure in the church. Um, but there's a structure that we are to walk in outside of the church, in our home and in our family life, and even in our day-to-day employee-employer relationship life. And, and, and now having said that, let me, let me, let me add... That there really ought to be, there really ought not to be any disconnect in our life. We ought not to compartmentalize our lives and say we'll do this at church, but we're not going to do that at home, or we'll do this at church, but we're not going to do that on the job. Our lives ought not to be compartmentalized and disconnected like that. If we're in Christ, we're in Christ seven days a week, twenty-four hours a day. All right. If we're in Christ, our lives ought to reflect that when we live inside the church and when we are living in the world outside of the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, he picks up this idea of submission and applies it to the family. In verse 22, he says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. 
For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Now I would say, I would call this the primary passage in the Bible on marriage. Now there's a lot of other places we can go to talk about marriage, even from the very beginning, which is the most often quoted passage in the scriptures. Is, is that for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother cleave to his wife. It's repeated over and over. The Bible gives us an idea of what God designed the marriage to be. But if you had to take one passage of scripture and say this is how God instructs the Christian marriage um, to, to be lived out, to be fleshed out. And this is the premier, the primary, the premier passage in all of God's word about the role and the responsibility of both the husband and the wife inside the home and in, in both of those there is some there is a submission to God first and his word and a submission secondly to each other according to his word and that's implied throughout the text and before we dig into it I need to say this because of the culture that we're living in when you see the word husband in this text it is the Greek word a-n-e-r it is translated almost as equally as it's translated husband, it is translated man. Those two terms are interchangeable in the scripture. And ner, A-N-E-R, is always either man or husband. It never, ever, ever refers, um, it never, ever has a feminine characterization in the scripture. Now i got to say, this is a rabbit, but it's got to be said. When you look up the, the, the term wife, the term for wife is gune, G-U-N-E. It is translated almost as many times as woman as it is wife. It's interchangeable. And so let me just say this at the outset, and I'm going to leave it alone, all right? A biblical marriage cannot be anything but a man and a woman. All right? Let's settle that, all right? I don't care what our culture says. I don't care that other churches are jumping on this bandwagon and other denominations are jumping on this bandwagon and they're marrying a man to a man and a woman to a woman. That is not biblical. And it never will be. From the very beginning, the Bible has declared, for this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, woman. That's the only way it can ever be. Now, Paul started with the wife and woman role, but I'm not going to start there. I was going to kind of join them both together, but I can't do it because I don't think I can do either one of them justice if I do that. Paul started with the wife and the woman role. And that's that passage of scripture that most women cringe at and most men want to say amen to. It's dangerous for you to do that. I want to start with the husband and the man role because he gave, he gave us two examples to follow. He literally said that, that men are to love their wives like Christ loves the church. So the model for a man is Christ. 
the model for the woman or the example for the woman is the church. As the church submits itself to Christ, so wives submit themselves unto their husbands. So the two examples that are to follow is Christ representing the man, the church representing the woman, and in those two examples, which one bears the primary weight of the relationship responsibility? And, and, I, and I say that another way. Who carries the heaviest burden to both create and nourish the relationship between Christ and his church? That's a no-brainer. Jesus. The burden of getting us to heaven is on Jesus, not me. It's on him, not us. He's the one that initiated the relationship. He's the one that strengthens the relationship. He's the one that sustains the relationship. Uh, listen, Jesus' role is paramount um, in the success of the church. So I can't start with the woman because I don't believe she carries the primary responsibility of the relationship. Uh, I believe Christ carries that relationship in the church, and I believe the husband carries that or that responsibility in the church, and the husband carries that responsibility um, in the home. So you might say it like this, and please don't take this the wrong way, but husbands are to be Christ at home or Christ of the home in the sense that the Bible says that the husband is both the head and the savior of the wife or of the home. Now, I didn't say that. That's what Scripture says. That's what Paul said under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that the husband is both the head of the home and the savior of the of the body, which is the, which is another word for the church. So we are we are to be Christ in the home, or Christ at home, or 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 the Christ of the home, in the sense that we're the head and the savior of our wife. Now, God gave Adam a good gift when He gave him Eve, right? I mean, God looked at the man by himself and said, "It's not." That's the only thing God seen in His creation that was wrong. He looked at the man alone and he said, that's not good for him to be alone. And I'm going to make him a wife. And Adam was happy um, that God gave him a wife. He looked at the animal creation. He looked at how God had, had organized them, male and female, and called them to multiply and, 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 and fill the earth. And then he said, Adam is not good by himself. And he created the woman. By the way, the woman was the last act of creation. When God finished the woman, he was finished. She was the crown. And the work that Christ is doing in the world right now is building his bride, which is going to be the crown of the new heaven and the new earth. When the church is finished, the work of his creation will be finished. And then eternity will begin. I, I'm going to close out on that note in a minute. But let me say this about Adam and Eve. Adam failed to be the head and the savior of his wife. You look through scripture and every all of the weight of scripture puts Eve's transgression on Adam's shoulders. Now you can like that or not. I don't really care, but the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 that the responsibility for sin in the world is on man. Death came to the world because of man's 
failure to be the head and the savior of his wife. It's repeated almost verbatim in verse 19 um, when, when, when he says that one man's disobedience. He didn't say woman. It's that same word, inert. And, and it's spelled out in one of those other verses. It names Adam's name, which is just another word for man too. By one man's disobedience, not by one woman's disobedience, but by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one, Christ, many are going to be made righteous. So Adam's failure led to Eve's failure. When Adam failed to be the lead, the head, and the savior of his wife, Eve became easy prey for the enemy, and she was deceived. The Bible said that Eve was deceived by the enemy. It said, But Adam went into it with his eyes wide open. He heard God say. He knew what God said. And instead of being the head and the savior, Adam failed, and it led to Eve's failure. And so the first question that I want to ask ourselves this morning and the question that we're going to fill in the blank for the rest of the message, and I don't have anything new to preach to you this morning. You heard me preach this before. The text hadn't changed and the message hadn't changed. My understanding of it's changed a little bit more and my application of it has changed a little bit more. I'll never forget 15 years or more ago, I preached this message on Sunday morning and I made eye contact with my wife and I was ashamed to look at her again for the rest of the message. Because I knew that the woman on the second pew, on the right-hand side, looking at me, I saw it in her eyes. When will you apply? I was waxing eloquent about husbands ought to behave themselves. And then I realized in that moment, you failing, big boy, big time. And so my goal from that day forward has been I got to live up to this expectation that the Scripture places upon my shoulders so that my wife, when she sees me behind this pulpit, doesn't see a hypocrite. That she sees a husband that's doing his very best to be the head and the savior of this home. So the message hadn't changed. But I think i got a little bit better grip on it now than I had. Not that I've got it all applied just like it needs to be. But I understand it more and I want it more. So how can a husband succeed in being the head and the savior of his wife? How can a husband succeed? That's what Christ is to the church. That's what the husband is to be to his wife. So how do we succeed in that? Well, he tells us in the text. By loving her. And we don't get to make up our own definition of what love is. The Bible says that we're to love our wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. We love our wife not by our own definition of that word, but by the love that Christ taught us by his own example for the church. And here's what I think that love looks like. Again, you've heard me say these things before. It is a seeking love. The Lord Jesus Christ sought me long before I sought him. He sought you long before you sought him. It was a love that went looking. It was a love that went looking for me. It was a love that went looking for you. It didn't wait to be sought after. It went seeking first. Um, it was, the, it was the, like the shepherd that has the sheep that goes astray. He didn't wait for the sheep to come to it. He went to the sheep. It's a seeking love. Um, it is not conditioned on our condition. Man, you've got to hear what I'm saying now. It is not conditioned on our condition. The Bible says that Christ loved us while we were what? Sinners. 
He loved us while we were his enemies. He loved us before we were reconciled to God. He loved us before we were born again by the Spirit of God. It was a seeking love. Jesus came looking for us when our condition was awful. I know I'm a harp on this a little because I know a lot of men and I met a lot of men and I used to be one of those men that says, I love my wife like Christ loves the church when my wife submits to me like the Bible tells her to submit to me. But that's backwards. That's backwards from Christ's example. That's backwards from what he expects out of us. We submit to Jesus because he loved us. We submit to Jesus because he loved us first. It was a seeking love. It's a sacrificing love. The Bible said that he gave himself for us. It was not a selfish, self-centered love. It was a selfless love. Jesus put our needs ahead of his own needs, uh, even to the point of suffering death on the cross. He surrendered himself um, to, to, to the will of God for our sakes. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Jesus had a selfless kind of love. He said, I didn't come. I didn't come for you to serve me. I came to serve you. I didn't come for you to minister to me. I came to minister to you. I didn't come for you to give to me. I came to give my life as a ransom for you. A sacrifice in love. Served us first. And I tell you this, my wife don't my wife really requires very little from me except my time and attention. She's not high maintenance. I would say that the reason a lot of people were drawn to Jesus was because Jesus was giving people time and attention that nobody else would give time and attention to. Why were those sinners, those rank rotten sinners that the Pharisees couldn't believe were having a meal with Jesus or washing Jesus' feet with their tears? Or Why was the world being drawn to Jesus? Because the Pharisees had kicked those people to the side and Jesus was welcoming them in. It's not just a seeking love and a sacrificing love. It's a saving love. The love that Christ has for the church lifted us from a place of despair where we had no hope, lifted us from a place of, of, of impending destruction because that's where we were headed. And we were literally destitute without him. We didn't have any hope, no peace, no real joy. None of that came before Christ saved us with his love. And so when I say that we have a saving love, um, what, what Jesus has given to us in his love is safety, security, and sustenance. He has, will provide all of our needs according to his riches and glory. He saved us um, from the pit of hell. He gave us the security of our salvation, and he promises to sustain us to the very end. He which hath begun a good work in you will finish it. So there was an exchange that took place. What, where did that exchange begin? It began with the love of Christ being extended to us while we were still sinners. I read a book a long time ago, and I would, I would encourage all you men to read it and all you women to read it after your man reads it or while he's reading it even, called Wild at Heart. 
rediscovering the masculine soul, rediscovering how God created man. The longings of our heart uncovered. That God has given man a battle to fight. That God has given man an adventure to live. And that God has given man a beauty to win. All of our movies revolve around those themes. All of our books essentially revolve around those themes. But something that stood out in that book when he talked about having the beauty to win, that's what Christ is doing with his bride today. He's winning her. But one of the things that he said in that book is that in the heart of every woman is a little girl looking for that knight in shining armor that's going to lead her and save her. I understand that the feminist movement probably turned backflips hearing me say that. I also believe that the feminist movement is about as unbiblical as you can be. I believe that the heart of little girls... In fact, look at, the, look at the fairy tale. Look at the Snow Whites. Look at the Cinderella stories. Look at those stories that little girls are drawn to. And then the men, the guys, you know. I, they want to be. In their heart, they want to take on that role. That's the role that Christ assumed for the church. And that's the role that we are to assume as husband, not only is it a saving love, but it doesn't, it doesn't stop with seeking sacrifices and saving. Now, that's what Jesus, he sought us before we sought him. He sacrificed for us before, um, before we received him. He died on the cross for us. He saved us when we began to trust his love, but he doesn't even leave us there. It's not enough for him just to save us from our sin. He sanctifies us for himself, a sanctifying love. And this, this is borne out in the, in the scripture that, that Jesus loved himself and gave himself for the church so that he could sanctify it and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it back to himself, a glorious church. So what does that say about Jesus' love? He saved us, but he also, you know, and this is the only part of his love that you can say is self-seeking. But the reason he loves the church the way that he loves the church is because the love of Christ makes us better than we are. And, and when we become better than we are, we bring glory to him. My mind's running. Proverbs chapter 31, when it talks about a virtuous woman. It ends with, the, with a, a couple of statements. It doesn't really end with this statement, but it says, her husband will be known in the gates. When, when Christ loves the church and sanctifies it, we become better than we were without him, and we make him known to the world that we live in. He, he keeps on loving us, and as he keeps on loving us, he keeps on purifying us and perfecting us, washing us. And I think this is important to, to make a note of. He washes us with his word. 
And men, I think we have the ability to wash our wives with our words. By the way that we speak to them, by the way that we interact, by the way that we communicate with them. Now, before we move on to the next point, I'm going to say this. Stop looking for exceptions to the rule. Because I know men, if I, when I start this stuff, I know men who will say, you just don't know my wife. It don't work like that. Stop trying to look for exceptions. And just take God at his word and submit to him first. And if you submit to him and his word, then you can be the husband that he's called you to be, regardless of where your wife's at or what she's doing at this particular time or what she's not doing at this particular time. The second thing the text says is that, it doesn't actually say this in this text, but I'm going to borrow from Peter because I believe, I believe Paul is inferring it, implying it in the passage. We're to honor our wife. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. I'm not going to turn there in my Bible. I'm just going to let her put it up for me. The first six verses of 1 Peter deal with the wife and how she's to live her life. What's summarized for the husband in Peter is this one verse. Dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. I don't, I'm, I'm not going to long discourse on this. I don't, believe women are, I don't believe women are weaker physically, not necessarily, or spiritually at all because women are some of the bedrock and always have been of the church. Or mentally, I think women are wise. I think the area of a woman's life that she may be weaker than a man is emotionally. And I believe God made her more tender emotionally because that's what makes her the better nurturer in the home. It was by design. But the Bible says that we're to dwell with them with the knowledge, giving honor to them as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. So um, I looked up the word honor. It means to value, esteem, show respect for as an equal partner. Um, and and, and you, you, can re, you can do a little bit of research. Christianity is the first religion, literally, that has treated women as co-equals with a man, not property. Even, even under the Jewish dispensation, even under Judaism, men had a tendency to look at their wives as if they were their property. Um, and, and nobody validated the value of a woman any more than Jesus Christ himself validated that value. When you look at the scripture and his interactions with women, um, the first person that had the birth announced of Christ announced was a woman. Um, the first, the last at the cross and the first at the tomb was a woman. The first that ever preached the gospel message was a woman. So you can't, you, the, the New Testament does nothing to diminish the value of a woman. It does everything to promote women as co-equals with the man with a different role, but equal in their honor, equal in their value, equal in their esteem, and we should show them that kind of equal respect. And how do we do that? How do we, how do we honor our wife that way? How do we value? How do we esteem? How do we respect her in that way? 
by valuing her person, by recognizing who she is. A, one, a wonderful, beautiful gift from God. Adam wasn't doing so good by himself. So God gave him the best gift that he'd ever give a man. The Bible said he that finds a wife finds a good thing. There, was, there were seven years of our marriage I did not cherish my wife as a good gift. There were some years after that that I didn't understand what that fully meant, even though I had a wonderful example in my dad to follow that I didn't follow. But to value her person is simply to value her for who she is and that God gave her to you as a gift. God doesn't give bad gifts. Every good and perfect gift is from God. Secondly, to value her position. That's because of what she does. The importance of the wife, the mother, and the home cannot be overstated. What she does for us. Value her and her position. And then lastly, that we value her presence. And that's simply because of what life would be without her. Now, I've, I've had some good friends this past year who have lost their wives. Brother Jimmy's here this morning. I, Brother Jimmy tell you what her presence means. My friend, Brother Bill Mullis, when we meet together on Wednesdays, I've seen him just, just break down emotionally several times. He said, I never, he said, I'm surrounded by people. It's not that I'm alone. He said, I have a wonderful family, wonderful children, incredible grandchildren, a church family that loves me and that's there at the drop of a hat for anything that I need. I'm not alone, but he said, the, the presence of my wife being absent reminds me of what a wonderful gift God gave. And I know most, most of you men are like me. You've sat down or laid in your bed at night and thought about all of the faults that your wife had has I'm going to say past tense for my wife because she ain't got none anymore <laughs> but these men that are living without the presence of their wife I promise you they ain't thinking about her faults anymore the last way that we become the head and the savior of the home is by cherishing cherishing our wife now the word cherish means literally to brood over to prioritize and and he gave an illustration in the text he said just like we do our body just like we prioritize feeding our body protecting our body making our body better any way that we can. The Bible says that we're to cherish our wife, we're to brood over her like we do for our own physical needs. I, I, I use this in marriage counseling all the time. I ask men when I do premarital counseling um, what their role in the home is and most all men get the first two right. To be a provider. 
We are to provide for our wife. That's how we cherish her. Now, the, the, where most men don't fill in all these blanks is that we believe our role primarily in the home is a provider of the physical needs, but that's not all that our wife needs. I think that, that, that when, it's, when, we are, when we're cherishing her, we're providing for her whole person, not just her, her physical body, but her mental state, her emotional state, her spiritual state, whatever her needs are, that's what we've been called to provide her with by protecting her we usually get that right but we, we but we understand that from the perspective of I'm gonna protect her from anybody that comes against us that anything anything that's gonna hurt her anything that's gonna hinder her anything that might deceive her or destroy her that's my job to protect her from that well listen to me men sometimes our wives need protecting from us because we are the one hurting. We are the one hindering. We are the one destroying. And the thing that men doesn't often get is that whole idea of promoting her. Which, which is the same as what I said when I talked about the sanctifying love. And that is that we nourish her to become all that she can be and all that she could be. For God's glory and for our glory that we help her. Now, why women have the same kind of role when it comes to men, I believe I, I'm a better man because of my wife. And I'm going to let her answer this question for herself, but I think she's a better woman because of her husband. When, when we meet each other's needs in this way, we build each other up. And I, I, I can say this, I... I Cindy don't say a whole lot, <clears throat> but I will say that in the the last several years of our marriage, I have never been more contented and satisfied and in love with my wife. And I think she would testify the same. We have found that place in marriage. Not, not that we got it all nailed down. Listen, there are days that she can't stand me. There are days that I get on her nerves. There are days that I have to, I have to when we lay down at night, say, I'm sorry, I was a jerk today because I have been. We have bad days. It's not that we've got, but there ain't no, there is no thought whatsoever that I need somebody different, that I want somebody different. I have the one that my soul loves. And I think as I've tried to apply this passage of Scripture, I've seen what that whole sanctification process looks like. Because the more that I've tried to love her, the more that she's loved me in return. And we're reaping the benefits of that now. It ain't been easy to get to this place. But when we begin to submit ourselves to God and His Word and then submit ourselves to one another, you get this beautiful picture of how Christ is loving his church and how his church is submitting itself to Christ willingly, joyfully. Now you could call all these things duties. You could say, That's, it's my duty to love my wife. It's my duty to honor my wife. It's my duty to cherish my wife. 
But I'm going to tell you, Jesus does these things not because he has to, but because he wants to. Even when we are entirely unworthy, he keeps on loving, keeps on honoring, keeps on cherishing. for the purpose of transforming us from the inside out. Look at it like this. He's the benefactor and the beneficiary. He's the giver and the receiver. When he gives to us the way he gives to us, we give back to him the glory that he's worthy of as our head and our Savior. The preacher, my wife ain't that easy to love. Neither are you. <laughs> hey, I'm telling you, my wife, for the first seven years of our marriage, was the Christ of our home. And the church in our home. Not that she was trying to lead, not that she was trying to be my head. But if you read what Peter said in the first part of chapter 3, and what Paul said, and I think y'all might have read this this morning, what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that my believing wife sanctified an unbelieving husband. to the point that she'll tell you that the man she's married to today is not the same man she married. I got the same name. I got a different heart. And she played a big role in leading me to Christ. I'm going to take you back to Revelation chapter 19. I made an allusion to this. When all of the world's history comes to an end, when time is no more, this is what the angel in heaven says. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. And his wife hath made herself ready. Now that's Jesus and his church. Because of him, she did. Because of what Christ did for her, she made herself ready for him. The more he loved her, the more she submitted to him. Christ in the church, which Paul told us is a picture of the husband and the wife in the marriage. And you can argue with that if you want to. You can tell me how that won't work if you want to. But just understand that you ain't arguing with me, you're arguing with him. I didn't write it, I'm just reading it. 
you say, what if it doesn't work? Well, first, let's talk about what it has done. If you're saved this morning, it's because Jesus loved you just like I'm telling you love your wife. If, if you've been changed by the love of Jesus this morning, it's because he loved you and me when we were all, all, all unlovable by the world's standards, by man's standards. But I can tell you, if Jesus' love doesn't change a man, it ain't on Jesus. There ain't a soul in hell that can blame their lost condition on Jesus. You hear what I'm saying? We couldn't have been loved no better than he's loved us. So if we wind up in hell, it's because we absolutely spurn the love of God that's been shown to us in Christ. So if it don't change your wife, if you don't love her like Jesus and it don't change her, it ain't going to be on you. God ain't going to hold you responsible for her, but he will hold you responsible for you. The goal of our marriage is to make it a picture of Christ and the church. I pray this at every wedding I perform. Make this marriage a picture of Christ and his church. I'm beginning to understand more and more what that looks like. Both because of my place in the church and because of my own marriage. So how are we doing with that? And I would say, men, you first. Stop waiting on your wife to make the move. You first. Be the image bearer of Christ in the home. As her savior and as her head. You reap the benefits of that. Let's stand together as our musicians come. Lord, I put the results of this message right where they always are in your capable hands. I'm thankful, God, that many, many years ago you convicted me for my error, my failures. You exposed my hypocrisy through the eyes of my own wife, the good gift that you gave me. And from that day forward, I've wanted to do better, and I and I've I failed over and over and over again. And I acknowledge that before these people and her this morning. I, I'm hard to love still sometimes, and in that, I'm not being, I'm not being the Christ of my home that you called me to be. And I still need work. I still need to learn to submit myself to you. But I'm thankful, Lord, for the transformation that's taking place in Cindy and I's relationship. And I'm grateful that sometimes folks look at us and say, we want what you have. 
And I know that we have what we have just because we've taken you at your word and done our very best to apply it to our marriage. And right now we're reaping the glorious benefits of that. All the joy and peace and contentment that we can have ever hoped for. And God, if the marriages of the church could all grow like ours have grown, we'd be stronger as a body. We'd make a bigger impact on the world. We'd bring you more glory. It's saddened to me that the divorce rate in the church is the same as it is in the world. We need to do better. We need to apply your word here. I pray it help us to do that. I know like me, there's some. there may be some men here. The first thing that they need to do what I did in October of 1993 when I fell at your feet after you've been loving me for so long I asked you to be my savior and then I submitted myself to you as my Lord no man in this building can be Christ of his home until Jesus is Lord of their own heart So if there's one man here this morning that's lost, trying to live his life on their own, bring them to an altar of repentance. And God, I pray for every man in this home that has a wife, every man in this house that wants a wife, that we understand and know that it's time for us to step up and go first. We bear the primary responsibility. Help us to be Christ in our homes. A representation, an image bearer of Christ in our homes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.